The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. <coughs> the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Jesus himself uses that psalm in making a theological point when speaking to the leaders of Israel. I'm not going to go into it now, but... What a marvelous study that psalm is. Our uh, sermon today is from Numbers chapter 14. It's verses 1 through 10. It's going to take us three sermons to get through this particular uh, chapter. And we're going to actually, I think, rush through it a little bit, which I don't like to do, but it was the logical place to write these three sermons. So this is Numbers 14, 1 through 10, a year for each day, part one, verse one. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Oh, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. Then they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Chapter 14 of Numbers will take us a few sermons to get through. But that's okay because it's filled with all kinds of wonderful treasures. Today's verses will take us through some marvelous parallels to some rather profound New Testament doctrine. That is always a plus because we won't actually get to the New Testament for at least a few more years. Okay? <laughs> Things will speed up after Deuteronomy. And the final 34 books of the Old Testament, minus Ruth, Esther, and Jonah, which we've already done, will be finished up in a jiffy. But tying things in with the New Testament now will keep you on your toes in anticipation of when we actually get there. Chapter 14 also sets out a marvelous pattern for the Hebrew people, which will be repeated several more times in their history, as is recorded in the Bible, and which has continued on even to their modern reestablishment. That will be seen in next week's sermon. It leads to some rather remarkable occurrences which simply cannot have come about by random chance. Rather, the Lord is there behind the scenes. He's watching over every step of their history, ensuring that what is done through them testifies to who he is. But that then testifies to us that what he has done for us is also sure and reliable. If God has spent so much time taking such meticulous care of Israel to prove that he is trustworthy and reliable, then why would we assume that when he speaks to us through the hand of Paul, that his word would be any less trustworthy? That's the marvelous thing about studying the Old Testament. It is a confidence builder. Without it, we wouldn't have the basis for our faith that we otherwise can possess. 
I'm just not sure how theologians that dismiss Israel as permanently rejected people can feel any more confident about their own surety and salvation. To me, that's a huge disconnect. That is actually known as what I would call the crazy doctrine of replacement theology. And it only reveals an unfaithful God who does not keep his covenant promises. Our text first comes from Acts chapter 7, it's verses 38 and 39. This is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Though these words were specifically speaking about the incident of the golden calf, they can also be applied to Numbers 14. In both, the people rejected the Lord and turned their hearts back to Egypt. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New, the same faithless attitude is recorded about them. Even today, this is the state of almost the entire body of people that we call Jews. The only service they pay to the Lord is lip service. And many of them don't even pay that. They just outright reject him. And yet, because of his covenant with them, he has remained completely faithful to them. They may not agree to this, claiming that the many persecutions, the pogroms, and even the Holocaust belie this. But those are self-inflicted wounds. We saw that from Leviticus chapter 26. What they have received is far less than what could have been. If the Lord had not been faithfully tending to them, the name Israel would have been utterly wiped from memory. The Lord has been faithful to A.T. to the promises he made to them, both for good and for bad. In chapter 14 of Numbers, we have an example of national rebellion against him. The few that stood with him could have lived out their lives under his care, and then he could have ended the great plan, except for the sure guarantee of his word. Because he has spoken, Israel would stand. And because of his promise, Israel will stand. When you feel like the Lord's promises to you have failed or might be subject to failure, just look to Israel and the people who comprise that nation. We are dealing with a God of everlasting guarantees. When he speaks, it is done. Be confident of this. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is, let us return to Egypt. It's verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. The final words of chapter 13, which we ended last week, said, But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The inhabitants through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. It is these words which are the basis for the congregations crying out. They've been given a bad report, and they have accepted it as authoritative, and that bad report then spread throughout Kal Ha'edah, or all the congregation. One can see it. The story would pass from the leaders to leader and leader, and leader, down the various divisions. It would go from the tribal leader to the leader of thousands. From there, a little embellishing of the situation would be passed on to the leaders of hundreds. And from then, it would continue to the leaders of tens. Then from there, the individual men would embellish a bit for their wives and children to consider. The moans would grow louder, and the entire camp would be set in a tizzy. Verse 1 continues, and the people wept that night. Remembering that in biblical reckoning, a day goes from evening to evening, it is of note that this is recorded. Instead of being grateful for a new day and a new hope, the people mourn over the new day that they have been given. Instead of a night of sound sleep, they moan and weep in anxiety and in distrust. Their outlook is of despair, not confidence, and it is one which shows a great ingratitude to the Lord, as well as one which lacks any confidence in him at all. Verse 2, and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. It was noted in the sermon of Numbers 9, 15 through 23, that a challenge to Moses was implicitly a challenge to the Lord himself. Moses is the one through whom the Lord spoke to the people. Here the people complain against Moses, and so their complaint is an implicit complaint against the Lord. 
However, they also add in Aaron, the high priest and mediator to complain against. This then adds fuel to an already burning fire. As Aaron is the designated intercessor, their complaining against him brings about another major problem for the people. The problem is one which is noted by the high priest Eli, who rebuked his sons in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Here's what he said to his sons. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? To complain against Aaron is to cut off the only intercessor for their sins. Aaron stands as the Lord's representative for this. And as such, they again implicitly complain against the Lord. Of this, Matthew Henry rightly says, they wish rather to die criminals under God's justice than to live conquerors in his favor. Verse 2 continues, And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. The sentiment has been stated by the people before. First in Exodus chapter 14, just before having the waters of the Red Sea parted, and again in Exodus 16 at the giving of the manna, the people had turned their hearts back to Egypt. However, those were both before the giving of the law, a law which they had agreed to. Now their words are acts of open rebellion against the Lord, but they are under the law which stands as authority over them as well. Despite that fact, their words are a remarkable statement of acrimony towards the Lord. They had cried out in their bondage and he delivered them from it. Now they implied that their plight here is worse than their state there. It is as if he is to blame for having answered their cries in Egypt in the first place, ignoring all of the marvelous things he had done for them and ignoring the fact that they will be getting up and gathering manna in just a few hours, which will sustain them. They mourn for the bondage that they had been delivered from. Either that, verse 2 continues, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Like the previous words, what they say now is a rather stupid statement to make. If they had died in the wilderness, meaning at Tabara, where the Lord's anger burned, they wouldn't be alive to even complain about their plight. Further, they are in the wilderness. If they didn't want to go up to Canaan, and if death in the wilderness was preferable, they could simply have a suicide party and be done with it. But their words are mentally confused and without any cohesion to reality. As Solomon says, But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. However, in looking ahead to the response of the Lord, the very words that they state here become their sentence. They are no longer in Egypt, and they will not be returned there. Not by the Lord. His act of redemption has been completed. However, his act of judgment, based on the covenant made between them, is forthcoming. The sentence itself will be based on the words that they now speak. Though getting ahead in the narrative, this was referred to by the author of Hebrews about 1,500 years later when he wrote this. Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And again, Jude, speaking in more general terms about the incidents which occurred during these 40 years, said, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What we have recorded here is a total lack of belief in the Lord, meaning in his word, in the integrity of that word, and also in his ability to perform in fulfillment of that word when required. Verse 3, why has the Lord brought us into this land? Like the King James Version, the translation here is incorrect. The words are speaking of Canaan, not where they are. It should say in the future tense, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? Verse 3 continues, to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims. Two thoughts are here stated. First, there is death for the men who would face their enemies in Canaan. And secondly, there is a sad fate of becoming plunder for their wives and children. The word is a new word in the Bible, baz. It means spoil or booty. The fate for them might be considered worse than for those who are lost in battle. In this, they use the word tough, meaning little ones. That comes from the word tafaf, which signifies to trip or to take little steps. And thus, it's a small child. Their words imply that the Lord is lacking compassion on those who are the most helpless. It is the same type of false moaning accusation one constantly hears from the liberal left today as they continuously accuse others of wanting to harm the children. 
We see it all the time. Well, that's what they're doing towards the Lord. Verse 3 continues, Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? The words are obvious, and they are said in both stubborn rebellion and in faithless condemnation of the Lord's power to save and to keep on saving, to provide and to keep on providing. As Adam Clark says about this notion of returning to Egypt, he says, Great evils, when once some time past, affect the mind less than present ills, though much inferior. They had partly forgotten their Egyptian bondage, and now smart under a little discouragement, having totally lost sight of their high calling and of the power and goodness of God. Now, I'm going to stop right there for a minute, and I'm going to tell you how good God is in that. Because if you think of it, we always remember the wonderful memories. When we smell a flower that we have not smelled in 45 years, we go back to the land where we smelled that particular flower, we can remember the memories as if they were right now. But when something terrible happens in our lives, the memories fade quickly, and we cannot bring them back. And that's what Adam Clark is saying about these people. And they refuse to even acknowledge that grace of God. Surely we know what Adam Clark said is true and we can see it. But let's stop here and let's remember what Egypt pictures. It consistently has pictured one's previous life before coming to Christ and being redeemed by him. We were in bondage to sin and the devil was our master. In understanding this, do the words here not fit you or someone you're dealing with? Who is the faithless Christian who has been redeemed and who constantly and consistently moans that the Lord isn't taking care of them, meeting their needs, and understanding their wants, hopes, and desires? This is the very person who is seen in faithless Israel, and the church is filled with them. It is any one of us, including Charlie Garrett, at any given time as well. When we call out to God in an accusatory manner that he just cannot fill our needs, our hopes, our wants, and our desires, or when we question his ability to carry us through our ordeals, we are what faithless Israel pictured. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Well, is that what you want? Were you happier in your addiction? Were you happier in your misery? Has the divorce that you had before with one wife now turned into another divorce that you are again contemplating? For some, the answer is yes, I would rather wallow in the land I came from. How many of you were alcoholics? How many of you were drug addicts? How many of you have been addicted to porn and to all of the other terrible things that affected our lives in the past? And we came to Christ and we put those things behind us. And now I want to go back to that. He brought us out of Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. Verse 4, so they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. This is actually as great a sin, if not greater, than everything they have yet said. The Lord is their head. Moses is their designated leader. The covenant has been made by the Lord and through him. It is thus a double rejection. It is a rejection of their designated leadership, and it is a rejection of the agreement that they made with and between that leadership. In appointing another leader, they would be outside of the Lord's favor, and they would be outside of his grace. Of these words, Matthew Henry logically states, could they expect that God's cloud would lead them, or his manna attend them? Suppose the difficulties of conquering Canaan were as they imagined. Those of returning to Egypt were much greater. The one to guide them would have the same large burdens and difficulties that Moses had already faced. But there would be the added burden of no food or water. The manna would cease, and the water which came at the Lord's direction would not flow forth. But even more, the Lord would become their enemy on the path. And in a return to Egypt, their bondage would be increased far beyond what they had faced before. Their willful departure and the innumerable deaths which had occurred in Egypt because of it would be an obvious reason for the Egyptians to come forth, not in open arms, but in total suppression and bondage towards them, or even in total destruction. So brazen is this act of rebellion that it was remembered by Nehemiah after his own time of captivity. Here's what Nehemiah said. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in and possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. In this, Nehemiah was correct. They did appoint a leader. Though in the text it says nothing of that here in Numbers, it is understood. In rejecting the Lord, they appointed a new Lord. Even if no human was decided upon, the ruler of this world became their hope once again. They had appointed the same leader on this day that Adam had appointed over himself 2,515 years earlier. But in their rebellion, which resulted in punishment, Nehemiah says that the Lord did not forsake them. His corrective measures are intended to lead people back to him, not utterly destroy them. Understanding this, another point of theology must be brought up. Who is it that redeemed us today? Anybody? Jesus. What did he redeem us from? Sin. That's right. Yes, he redeemed us from the bondage of sin. But the answer is more involved than that. What did he redeem us from? The answer is from sin and from the curse of the law. That's Galatians 3 verse 13. Paul tells us in Romans that by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's Romans 3.20. Without law, sin cannot be imputed. That's Romans 5 verse 13. But when law is made, sin results from a violation of the law. If there is no law that says Ray cannot carry a gun into a bar, then Ray can carry a gun into a bar without being charged as an offender. But once the law is made, Ray will be held accountable for breaking that law. So what is our point of theology in this regard? It is that of returning to the law of Moses, which is comparable to Israel now selecting a leader and desiring to return to Egypt. If Christ Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, as Galatians clearly says that he did, and if sin is imputed where law exists, as Romans clearly says, then a return to the law, which Christ Jesus redeemed us from, is exactly what is being pictured here. Paul calls the law a yoke of bondage. That's Galatians 5 verse 1. Jesus said to the people that he offered a different yoke in Matthew 11. Here's what he said. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Though spoken to Israel while under the law, his words are saying that what he would do for them would be to free them. This is why Paul calls the law a yoke of bondage and why he said to not again be entangled with it. To return to works under the law as countless teachers and denominations teach in one degree or another is to first reject Christ as Lord and it is to call for another leader, Satan. Secondly, it is to return to where you have been redeemed from, meaning bondage to sin and the curse of the law. This is why Paul says, using circumcision as a benchmark of pursuing the law, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Everything that the Lord has done for Israel was washed away in their desire to return to Egypt. Everything that Christ died for is washed away in return to the law of Moses. When you are told to tithe, to worship on a Saturday, to not eat pork, or to follow any other precept under the Mosaic law, you are directed by your bearded pastor under the authority of the word of God to refuse to comply. In Egypt, there is death. In Egypt, there is a harsh taskmaster. In Egypt, there is suffering and loss. In Egypt, there are sad and inevitable consequences for sin. You are not to return to Egypt, but you are to follow Christ wherever he leads, even if it seems that the giants of Canaan are going to swallow you up in the process. Such shall never be. There is freedom in Christ, there is safety in Christ, and there is no imputation of sin for those who are in Christ. Stand firm in the truth which is found only in the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. I listened to the Bible. I told you I finished it up a couple days ago. I didn't finish it on the way home from Bible class. As I said, it was one chapter longer. So I finished it up the next morning and I love the last words of the Bible. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The Bible ends on such a wonderful note. Having said that, for the redeemed of the Lord, there may be an actual return to Egypt, but positionally you are still redeemed. If you have come to Christ, the penalties of sin in this life will come upon you, but your redemption is not in question. 
Israel in the verses ahead will suffer the penalties for their rebellion, but they will remain Israel and under the Lord's care. That is why Nehemiah said that despite their conduct, the Lord did not forsake them. The same truth holds for those in Christ. Paul reveals it several times and in several ways, but for the sake of absolute clarity, he says of one who had gone back to his own Egypt to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Such is the faithfulness of the Lord. Let us not test him despite that faithfulness. The destruction of the flesh is not a happy place to be as we walk in this unforgiving world with its harsh and unforgiving ruler. Verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. This is an act of great humility. The people have just determined to select another leader and return to Egypt. And falling on their faces, they are making an emotional appeal to the people. This is surely not, as most scholars say, a petition to the Lord on behalf of the people. Rather, it is an appeal directly to them concerning their unclear choice. It is probable that this act is tied into the words of Deuteronomy chapter 1. While there, prostrated before the people in humility, Moses speaks words of resolute surety for them to consider. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 1. Then I said to you, now think of him laying on his face in front of the people. Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. After the people's pity party, Moses humbly tried to reason with them. It shows the character of the man that he would so abase himself in this way. He intended the best for them and he knew that following the Lord in obedient trust was that best. And it should be the same earnest attitude that any decent pastor has for a church which is considering compromising their doctrine in order to increase numbers. It should be the same heartfelt attitude that any Christian parent has towards a child who is considering a bad life decision. And it should be the same display of concern that any Christian has when seeing a friend heading down a bad path. Someone has to at least try to bring reason back to the mind of those who are erring in their attitude about the Lord or who are backsliding in their devotion to the faith they previously professed. The land of promise lies just ahead. It is within our grasp if we will just pay heed. We can set our sights on it or instead we can turn back to Egypt like the faithless breed. The Lord is promised and our home is assured. Nothing can hinder us from entering into glory. It was for this that the cross he endured, and it is the final step for us in the gospel story. Will we by faith call out and receive? Will we trust the Lord in his promise of the gospel story? All he asks is that we by faith believe, and in that simple act, he guarantees our entrance into glory. Thank you, O God, for this marvelous promise to us. Thank you, O God, for the surety which is found in Jesus. Our second thought today, only do not rebel against the Lord. It's verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. What is implied in this is that the petition of Moses was ineffective. To tear one's clothes is a sign of great distress. When Reuben found that Joseph was no longer in the pit he had been thrown in, he tore his clothes. When Jacob heard that his son Joseph was dead, he did likewise. And when Benjamin was accused of stealing Joseph's cup and was destined to a life of servitude, his brothers tore their clothes. This same level of great distress is now seen again in Joshua and Caleb. The people have rejected Moses, and in turn, they have rejected the Lord. Nothing more inconceivable could have happened than the small spark of discontent turning into a raging fire of rebellion. But that is what happened. The only remedy is to stand in the breach and attempt to repair it before it can no longer be fixed. What is seen here is that Joshua and Caleb are found faithful, and it is what is explicitly stated about them in Numbers chapter 32 with these words, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. As we have seen, Caleb is noted as a Kenizzite, a Gentile people, and yet he is reckoned as the representative of Judah who spied out the land of Canaan. 
We have seen also that Caleb means dog, which is a term associated with Gentiles. And so we have here a picture of those faithful Jews seen in Joshua and also faithful Gentiles as seen in Caleb, who trust in the Lord regardless of the obstacles that otherwise would seem insurmountable. I'm not saying that Caleb is a Gentile, but in picture, that is clearly what is being conveyed. Joshua and Caleb are faithful towards his word, and they are concerned about his honor, which is now being blasphemed by the people as witnesses of what they had seen. And for the sake of the Lord's name and the safety and honor of Moses and Aaron, they now present their own words concerning what they saw. Verse 7, And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. They begin their words with the land itself, saying, Tovah haaretz meod meod. Good the land. Very, very The land isn't just great, rather it is exceedingly so. They had left Egypt, and that could not be considered an exceedingly great land. Other than the area where the Nile flowed through or where it flooded the plains, it was a barren desert. The land where they stood now was just an empty wilderness. None of them had ever experienced land such as was now ahead of them. It is the strongest of enticements to have them stand and listen to the rest of their argument. And this is the same way that one should be inclined to speak about the promises of the Lord found in Jesus Christ. We don't just have a better land ahead, but we have one which is tov me'od me'od, good, very, very. There is, in fact, nothing that can be compared to it. The word has been spoken, the land has been described, and it is waiting for the redeemed to come in and to enjoy. Again, why would we turn back to Egypt? Or why would we put our hopes in the place where we are now, in a wilderness between Egypt and glory, which is exactly what we're living in? We can't stay here, and so we can only strive forward or turn back. Every day is a new day with the same decision to make. Let us stand on the promises of the Lord, and let us set our feet toward that heavenly home to which we are sure to come when our days are done. For those who are willing to trust the Lord, the Lord will delight in them, and to them, The reward awaits. Verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. The words here are meant to bolster the confidence of the people. The Lord is already delighted in them by choosing them first in Abraham and then in the successive generations since him. He is delighted in them by bringing them out of Egypt. He is delighted in them by giving them manna. He is delighted in them by giving them his law. On and on, there is no reason to assume that the past performance of delighting in them will suddenly cease two steps outside of the land of promise. Now, I'd like to tell you about something I heard this week. There's a pastor that, he's dead now, but he's somebody I respect immensely. And several people in here probably listen to him as J. Vernon McGee. One of my friends posted me this past week. He said, J. Vernon McGee was scared to death of dying. And I thought, that doesn't sound at all like the pastor that I have heard of, because I, I got to tell you, I'm going to be frank with you. I go out to mission work every single Saturday with Tom and Jim and Laura and a few other people, Chris there. And, you know, we got these people who go out there and Tom and I, Tom's the leader. We have an agreement that if one of us passes out while we are out there, we are not to call the ambulance until the leg stops twitching because I want to see Jesus. And that's serious. I'm absolutely serious. We, there's one other person back there that feels the same as well. She said yesterday at lunch at IHOP after mission work that we are having a race, Charlie and I, to see who's going to get there first. Now, I'm not going to go killing myself and I'm not going to do anything detrimental, but I want to be with Jesus. That is all there is to it. So when I heard about J. Vernon McGee being afraid of death, I, you know what? It was about three weeks ago. I was lying on the couch about three in the morning. And yeah, I, I, I had this real funny painting right here. And I actually thought, I'm going to die. I was so happy. I was, I, I'm absolutely serious. I know it's a pain in the neck to go to funerals, but hey, listen, I, I was actually felt relief when I felt that. And then it went away and I'm still here preaching to you today. And I, and I feel pretty healthy. There you go. So just so you know that the past is the highest indication that the future is set and that they will, meaning Israel, in fact, be brought into the land to occupy it. And it is, verse 8 continues, a land which flows with milk and honey. The one point of agreement between their words and the words of the other 10 spies are these now. In verse 1327, this is the same term used by them to describe the land. 
And so now there is a uniting of the claims concerning Canaan to prove that what they are saying is true. It is now the seventh of 20 times that the term will be used, and it is always but once used in connection with the land of Israel. The land is rich and abundant in all that the term implies. Verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. Ach ba Yehovah altim rodu. Only against Yehovah do not rebel. The people have already rebelled against the Lord, but they are imploring them to cease and desist from it and to instead align themselves with him once again. Such rebellion is considered a vile sin to the Lord, as Samuel explained to King Saul when he had been rebellious towards the word of the Lord. Here's what Samuel said. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The Lord had proven himself faithful towards Israel. And so the only ruin that can come upon them is because they have brought it on themselves. It is their rebellion, not his inability to save, that will bring destruction. What they should fear is being out of favor with the Lord. They are being implored to not rebel in this way. Verse 9 continues, nor fear the people of the land. The Lord has already named all of the inhabitants of Canaan many times. Twice, it was in connection with the term, a land flowing with milk and honey. And several times, he has stated that he would cut the people off and drive them out. With the assurances given, the only element needed to make this come about is one thing. What is it? Faith. That's right. There's literally nothing between them and possessing the land but their own lack of faith. As for the people of the land, Joshua and Caleb now explain their state even now because of the Lord's guarantee. Verse 9 going on, for they are our bread. It is an idiom that first means that they will be swallowed up as easily as if eating a meal. David used the same term in the 14th Psalm. He said, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? A second underlying meaning of the words is that the people would be as a provision of bread to them by supplying them with all that they needed. There were cities already built. There were fields already available for cultivation. There were vineyards on the hills and cisterns dug in the ground. The people would be swallowed up as bread and they would provide the necessities of life as bread does. Verse 9 continues, their protection has departed from them. Sar tzilam me'alahem has departed their shadow from them. The tzel or shadow is a metaphor for protection. In the Mideast, the sun is hot. Everybody that's been here to Israel, you know that, don't you? It's very hot in Israel. The east winds blow with scorching heat. Thus, to have a covering shadow is a protection from this. This was seen in the book of Jonah when the prophet sat in the shade of the plant, which was prepared by God. At other times, the Lord is said to be a shadow of protection for his people. For the inhabitants of Canaan, their protection is gone because the Lord is turned against them. Their iniquity is full and the time of his judgment upon them has come. Israel's chosen to be the instrument of that destruction. However, in their rebellion, there will be a delay. But it is only that, a delay. In Joshua 2, Rahab the harlot will tell the spies that the hearts of the people have melted in fear of Israel's coming. Their shade will have departed and the heat of God's judgment will come upon them. Verse 9 continues, and the Lord is with us. Not only is the Lord against them, having withdrawn any protection they might have had, but the Lord is actively with Israel. He will be the devouring fire against their foes while being the defending protection for them. The battle is already won. If only Israel will heed. The words of courage have been spoken. And so with one final thought, they ceased their discourse. Verse 9 continues, do not fear them. It is their fear of the enemy and only this which stands between them and victory. In fearing the enemy, they will not have faith in the Lord. In their lack of faith in the Lord, they stand in rebellion against him. There can only be one acceptable path to follow. Joshua and Caleb have demonstrated faith and they will receive their reward for it. But what will Israel choose? As is normally the case throughout their history, they choose the wrong path. Verse 10, and all the congregation said to stone them with stones. 
What is seen here is that all who heard the words were excited to a state of complete agitation. They had already disbelieved, and now their lack of faith is turned into animosity towards those who kept their faith. Nothing has changed in the world, either religious or political, since then. Those who are faithful and confident are often the object of hate by those who lack faith. Today, the divide is just as obvious both within the church and within the political spectrum as it could be. Those who stand against the Lord will inevitably come against the people of the Lord. This was also the case with David many years later. Here's what it said in 1 Samuel 30. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord and was saved from the disaster threatened against him. This same Lord also interceded for Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb many centuries earlier. Verse 10 finishes with, Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. The wording here in this translation is not precise. The Hebrew says, Ukevod Yehovah nira beohel moed. And glory, Yehovah appeared in the tent of meeting, not the tabernacle. The Lord's presence was above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. That is kept in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is then covered by the tent of meeting. What we get here is the sense that the radiance of the Lord actually streamed out of the tabernacle, filling the tent, and then radiated out of the tent itself. The picture here is that of Christ when his deity shone forth, as in the transfiguration. It has only occurred a few times, and now it does so again. The glory of the Lord is calling for attention upon himself for the people to realize that he alone is their hope. There is little doubt that this glorious sight stopped the hands of those about to stone his faithful, and it probably filled the entire congregation with abject fear. There could be no doubt to them that the anger of the Lord was aroused, and its effect will be seen in the weeks ahead. It is a marvelous spot to end the verses today, leaving us in anticipation, thank you, of what is yet to come. And yet, it also leaves us with the surety that the Lord is listening. He is carefully watching, and he is attentive to what occurs in regards to his faithful. This is something we should find the greatest comfort in. When we are persecuted for our faithfulness, when a missionary is killed for his efforts, when we see the evil running amok and the faithless only growing in their animosity and enmity towards the Lord's people, he is there. He is faithfully and carefully tending to things so that they will come out as they should. Let us be assured of this, and let us be confident in the fact that our faith, though thoroughly tested, will be rewarded by the Lord. Let us be confident in this. I have a closing verse for you today from 1 Peter chapter 1, it's verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though you now do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you have never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I would implore you to do so today. I say it week after week after week, is that every single thing that we are being shown is showing a picture of us. When we see Israel a people, we want to think of you, the individual, because that is what is being pictured. Their faithfulness or their unfaithfulness does not negate God's faithfulness. He will always remain faithful to Israel. If you call on Jesus Christ, he will always remain faithful to you, even if you go back to Egypt. Hand such a man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. He is faithful, even though we are faithless. I've had friends actually walk completely away from the Lord. One of them was a great Hebrew and Greek scholar. Now he walked away from the Lord, and he's going to have to stand before the Lord, but the Lord will not walk away from him. He's living in Egypt right now, and whatever that guy is suffering is not worth what he is doing. And when he stands before the Lord, the regret he's going to face is going to be immense. But he will stand before the Lord, and he will be saved. This is what the Bible 
promises us. So please call on Jesus, this faithful God who kept this disobedient group of people for all of those years because he is faithful. Next week is Numbers 14, 11 through 25. Their penalty is well-deserved. It is true. It's entitled A Year for Each Day. Part two. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 26th number sermon. Okay, before I uh, give you the uh, poem today, where is it recorded that God, and I've said this in every single Bible class, so if you attend on Thursday night and you can't answer this, you're getting a wet noodle lashing, okay? Where is it recorded that God is not imputing our sins to us or counting our sins against us? I'll give you a hint. What? No, wet noodle for you. I'll start with this. Two Corinthians. Very good. I'm taking away the wet noodle from you. Two Corinthians chapter five, verse 19. God is not imputing our sins against us. The law is finished in Christ. We have received Christ. We are in Christ. And therefore, God cannot count sins against us because we are not under law. We are under grace. Everybody understand the logic? You cannot lose your salvation. I don't care what you do. You will pay the penalty for it in this life. A big one. And you will have to stand before the Lord for your transgressions. But you cannot lose your salvation because God is not counting your sins against you. The wages of sin is death. If there is no law, sin cannot be imputed. You have gone from death to life. It's wonderful what God has done in us. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in the desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there faithfully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Short poem and we're done. A year for each day. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. The Lord's power they denied. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron as if they had been gypped. And the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if we had only died in this wilderness, but now our lives are just one big mess. Why has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword that should become victims, our wives and children? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Let us turn back to there once again. So they said to one another, having fully flipped, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel, as if begging them to hear their plea. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, this belligerent attitude they could not understand. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. Hear the words we are to you relaying. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Just stop tempting him and making such a fuss. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection is departed from them. Their downfall is at hand. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Do not make such a fuss. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared, as the account does tell, in the tabernacle of meeting before the children of Israel. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Before I pray today, I'm going to do something I've never done after a sermon. I'm going to read you a prayer that was written by somebody else. I send out a birthday wish to everybody that I know has a birthday on Facebook. I do that each morning, okay? And so today, one of the people said, in response to my happy birthday note, she said, I am, uh, 
what's the word? Not claiming, but I'm using this prayer as my guide in the year ahead. And I read it. And actually, she just gave me the name of it. I had to look it up online, and I read it, and it was so beautiful. I typed it back to her, and then I printed it off for you today. This is by Robert Louis Stevenson, A Prayer for Home and Family. Lord, behold our family here assembled. This is my family, the superior word. We thank you for this place in which we dwell, for the love accorded us this day, for the hope with which we expect the morrow, for the health, the work, the food, and the bright skies that make our lives delightful. For our friends in all parts of the earth, here with the superior word, give us courage and gaiety in the quiet mind. Spare us to our friends. Soften us to our enemies. Bless us, if it may be, in all our innocent endeavors. If it may not, give us strength to endure that which is to come, that we may be brave in peril, constant in tribulation, temperate in wrath and in all changes of fortune, and down to the gates of death loyal and loving to one another. We beseech you of this help and mercy for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. We get our instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I've been having an argument with somebody on Facebook that uh, certain parts of uh, the New Testament don't apply to us. Now, we are dispensationalists, and we believe that to some extent. But there is one church. There are not two churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. The promises are to both, okay? And I even went so far as to say that's actually heresy to be saying what this person is saying because there is one church. And how do we know that? Paul's our marching orders. We all agree on that in this church. Paul is where we get our doctrine from because he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and this is a Gentile-led church until Israel's back in right with the Lord. But what does it say right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? The covenant, the covenant, there is one covenant, and it is for Jew and Gentile. That's all there is to it. We don't have two separate things going on. We have one thing and one party that is out of favor in that thing right now, and we're going to be taken out of that thing, and then that party is going to be in this thing. But it's still the same church. So we get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now think of this. Are we taking Lord's Supper? Who quoted the words that I just read? Who did Jesus say those words to? To the Jews. It, matter of fact, in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says, I behold, I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Gentiles aren't even considered there. He's making a new covenant with them. But Paul says that these words apply to us. Therefore, there is one covenant, there is one church, and there are some people that are in and some people that are out, but they will be back in when we are out. I'll say it again so you all understand that. Do not get caught up in strange doctrines. There is one doctrine, and this word is for all people at all times. 